Good morning. Uh, if the uh, kids that have not gone down to Sunday school, now is the time for you to head down. Uh, and today's scripture reading comes from two different passages, uh, starting in 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, verses 24 to 31. For those up in the back row, there is a youth class I will be down shortly to teach. So, 2 Kings chapter 6, starting verse 24. And uh, a warning before I start, this passage gets a little bit uh, gruesome, to say the least. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as, as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung was, was sold for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my Lord, O King. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. And then we will skip to Psalm 121. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, just a reminder, as James has uh, made a brief announcement about the building situation, to please keep that in your prayer. Um, and the realization that this is a communal process, we do this as a community together, asking God to give us direction, um, and that sometimes that direction comes through, uh, often through people's prayers and a sense of, well, this is what I'm feeling. 
As pastor, I want to say there is no cause for alarm. Um, there's no, we sometimes say like this is a big, big deal, but to God it's not big. Um, it's possible that in some ways for us even it's not that big, though we don't know exactly how and what will happen in terms of um, steps with the church. But it's a reminder that that even in some of these big things in our lives, particularly when they have to do with money and that type of thing, right? Those are the things we all think are big. Um, I think by the time we get to the end of our lives, we'll realize that actually it was different things. And it's, it's a reminder that this is a spiritual process. As I pray about the building, I do not feel any angst. I don't feel anxiety. But I do feel God directing me as I pray to different things. Do you ever have that happen to you when you're praying about something? Oh, Lord, bring this before you. And he gives you an answer that's over here <laughs> about something different. And then if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, if you're listening in the Holy Spirit, you realize, oh, he's saying this to me because my heart is troubled about this, but his presence is calling me in, in, to, to learn something so much more. Uh, that can happen in our lives, our family life, our individual lives. If that happens in a church community, of course, there's tremendous hope. And so as I've been praying, and I, as I say, I'm not in angst over the building and the wall, but as I've been praying about that, Lord, one of my prayers, one of my biggest prayers is that if people have different opinions on what could or should happen, that we work together well and realize that, you know, if things don't go the way I want or the way, that's okay. And that we exist as community together. So as I've been praying, um, the Lord has been, I really feel, laying on my heart that the rebuilding is the rebuilding of, of faith and mission, much more than building in walls. So I just don't have a picture of what it will look like in terms of building in walls uh, you know, years from now. But the Lord is beginning to emerge a picture in my mind of what it will look like in terms of mission and witness. And it's really, really good and hopeful. So we do, um, we do really appreciate... I was going to say your prayers as if this is something you're doing for the elders board. Or for, it's not. It's, we appreciate our prayers together. I just got back late last night from New York City and from Princeton University. Uh, Ken Bell and I left last Sunday afternoon and came back uh, yesterday late. We spent, the occasion of our trip was to go to Princeton University for a conference um, on theology, and, and it's called the Karl Barth Pastors Conference. And so it's pastors mostly from around the United States, but Canada as well, about 100 people, at quite a, you know, it's, it's a theological conference. So it's fairly academic, but um, really, really encouraging. Um, and just tremendous uh, content. One of the best conferences that I've been to in my life, actually. Uh, just was really grateful. And I'd never been to Princeton, and that's incredible. And but um, it's also palpable down there to, to follow up on some of the things we were talking about last week. Of course, we showed the, a couple clips and, uh, and, and got a little bit political. Uh, down there, it's really palpable how Christians are feeling um, what's happening. Now, I, I'm aware that, that there's a big part of the evangelical church that has fallen in line politically with what's happening in the United States. But I'll be quite frank, I was with a group of ministers who really, really know the word super well, and their view would be you can't get to support of, of some of these policies from Scripture. You just can't get there. 
And so they're in churches where they feel, some of them are in churches that are divided politically, some of them are in churches that line up with the current administration almost entirely. So they're in a church where they might feel if they preach what they feel is the word, they might lose their job. Um, and so it's, a, it's an interesting situation. Um, and of course, given the context, the, the conference was a Karl Barth conference. He's a theological hero of mine, not mine alone. Some of you know Eugene Peterson? Eugene Peterson was one of the speakers at the conference, um, and he had to cancel at the last minute because he has really diminished in his physical and mental ability, and so he's unable to present anymore. And it looks like he won't live for much longer, or at least that his life will not include preaching and teaching and writing anymore. Um, And so this was his last public address of his life. So he was unable to give it. So his son came, who's a pastor in Spokane, Washington, and his son came and read what Eugene Peterson had prepared. And Peterson... It was, of course, it was astoundingly touching. And the very end of Peterson's address, of course, this was the Karl Barth conference, but Peterson said, this is my last public address of my life. And what I would like to say at the end, and of course, really, it was to the Lord Jesus. Most of this was about Christ, but this was a theological conference. So he said, the last thing I'd like to say is thank you to Karl Barth, because this theology allowed me to have a Christian voice. Karl Barth was the number one dissenter in Germany before and during World War II. He and others, he wrote it though, but um, others signed it, wrote what was called the Barman Declaration against the Nazis. At the time, most of the German church had followed the government of the day. So you can draw parallels or whatever and uh, were against Bart and others. But of course, now through the lens of history, we can see how much gratitude people can have that there were those who were willing to stand against things that were clearly not scriptural. But we were showing a picture of German theologians um, raising their hand in salute to Hitler. Bart lost his job. He was in the university, was kicked out of the country, And being in Princeton was interesting because in 1962, Bart came to the United States and toured around with Martin Luther King Jr., and both of them gave presentations in the very places where I was sitting in chapel. Uh, I was with Ken Bell, and we spent three days in New York City before because Ken had never been to Manhattan, and it was just fantastic. And Ken um, pointed out a number of times, they said, oh, what brings you here? You guys have worked together. Well, two churches... Ken said, well, really, this is our 25th anniversary. (laughs) Actually, the way he put it is, we've been telling people this is the celebration of our 25th anniversary. And I finished quickly the bite I had in my mouth and said, no, we have not been telling people that. But it's true that we've been working together in some form or another for 25 years now. So um, I'm grateful. Uh, we have this series called Junk Drawer, and, I mean, we read these scriptures. Did you know that Second Kings story? I mean, I, I thought to myself, what if somebody in church walks out because they're offended by the Bible being read? But that passage is almost that strong. 
So junk drawer, the series is, we're looking at opening, this is a metaphor, opening something, a, a drawer in our house and saying, is this worthwhile anymore? And these two scriptures have that feel to them in different ways. One is the question, Psalm 21, the Lord will not let your foot slip. He won't mo- let your foot be moved. The sun won't harm you by day, the, not the moon by night. Is that really true? Or is it like looking at some little promise that you believed years ago, but now the reality of your life has kind of met, meant that you said, oh, I don't really think God blesses me like I used to think. The interesting thing for me is the people who tend to give up on those kinds of promises are usually, as I've encountered, are not the people who ex- experience great difficulty, <laughs> but the ones who fear it. So when we say, what's this for? I have something to show you. Um, first, a picture of my nana. I will always keep showing pictures of my papa and my nana in church. I do this at least once a year, probably more than that, because I say in God's economy that I owe my faith to these two people. They prayed for me every day. Um, so I owe my faith to them, and more directly I would say, I, well, obviously, physiologically, biologically, but I mean in terms of the spirit, I owe my life to them. Uh, and they used to have one of these. You remember? Have you ever thrown one of those out from your junk drawer? And like me, do you feel bad if you're throwing Bible verses out? <laughs> it's like, I better get rid of this, but quickly. This, this was one form of Bible in a box or verse, of daily verses. And I remember I, my grandparents had one just like this, our daily bread. And there would be... And, if you take, as a kid, I used to be, you take those out and kind of, they'd have some kind of substantial density to them if you held it to And I used to think, like, what happens if they all fall apart and is there an order to them? Like, if they fall onto the ground, excuse me. Um, and my nana used to have one of these. They, they read the daily bread together every morning and they would pray. And I know that one of the things they were praying about was me. And as I say, I owe so much to them. My nana was a worrier. I think maybe later, and maybe at that time, of course, because you don't think about your grandparents in this way, but you do as you get older, what were the things that were worrying her, what was on her mind? I just always remember her going like this. She had these. And it was always kind of some, some worry on her mind. But she also had a strong faith. And so I think that maybe she was also drawn to those, you know, when you feel this, you know, this at the back of the Bible, or you have other forms like that. The, the troubling version of this now, these days, is that you have some promises that are so... Some of them, like the Lord's not going to let the sun harm you. What does that mean? It's true, but... But some now, you, there's forms of this now, daily affirmations. They're not all Christian, right? Not that that's bad, but the daily affirmations that you might see on Facebook or little quotes or something like that. And in distorted theology, there are some daily promises that promise you that God will give you whatever you want. You know, he's going to make sure you're always healthy and always wealthy or something. That's a perversion and a distortion. So there's all kinds of forms of these. So you might open that junk drawer and think, well, some of these I'll keep and some of them it's time to let them go. And I think, what do those verses mean to my Nana? One time we were visiting her, we were kids, we were visiting them. And it was late at night, for some reason. I remember being fairly late at night that we got there. Um, we must have had a flight or something. And, then, and so almost like felt like middle of the night. And my nana said, there's a, 
there's a, a prayer line you can call now, 24 hours a day. And you can call this prayer line, and they just will do a prayer for you. I think it was probably a recording. Um, and, you, you know, so she reached to the phone on the wall, and she dialed the number, and I, and I could see her big smiling face. She was a tiny woman, but a whirlwind, just Mennonite cooking all the time, best food ever. But she had this phone to her ear, and she had a big smile on her face, ready to show her grandkids, you know, get in and listen to what's happening. Um, no speakerphone in those days. But then the smile on her face starts to disappear as she's listening. And then it becomes a bit of a furrowed brow. And then she hangs up quickly. I'm like, what happened? And she said, oh, it wasn't the prayer line. <laughs> She'd called the wrong number in the middle of the night and said, is this the 24-hour prayer line? <laughs> and I think he had some non-prayer words for my little Nana. They would believe and recount the promises of God, but their lifetimes included two world wars, the Great Depression. My Nana was a part of a family that escaped Russia, a German family that escaped Russia during the Russian Revolution. The people were being killed and her family and others had to flee. It's one of the main reasons they're here. They were immigrants here, poor. My Papa's family had already immigrated to Canada just before he was born. In 1901, 1902, I can't remember exactly when he was born. They immigrated and wound up in a little town called Aberdeen, Saskatchewan. I visited there once. It's, um, you, it's very small. And when he was young, he had to hop on the train during the Depression and head east. He went to Winnipeg and eventually to Leamington, Ontario. I told you about his jobs before, driving coal trucks and whatever it took. They lived in a time when the daily rhythms of life seemed much more punctuated by faith than they are now. By spiritual devotion, the community itself carried the Christian faith in ways that um, are more pervasive than we're used to. But that wasn't all good. But it was a life of prayer and church attendance, and they were faithful and devout, and their lives were ordered by faith. So I asked myself, as they would read something like Psalm 121, they would say it is absolutely true. All these promises. But there were times in their lives when their feet did slip and when the sun did harm them and they faced tremendous suffering and loss. And so we open this drawer and find this old psalm and we have this idea that God will bless you. And I know each one of you here, you want blessing from God. Whatever part of your life you're in, whether you're facing diminished physical ability, whether you're looking at that key time in your life for a career, building a family, oh God, would you bless us? But what does that mean? These promises are true. A song of ascents, this psalm is. Many of these psalms were written by David. This one not necessarily named as such, but it could have been like some others that aren't named as such written by David. David declares in another one of the Psalms, by my God I can advance on a troop. In other words, I can take on an army by my God. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he'd already done that. The army of Goliath. By my God I can advance on a troop. I can scale over a wall, he wrote as he was older. 
And he said, Oh Lord, you have set me in a spacious place. I have a life of space and blessing. And we like these images, and my Nana and, Palma, my Nana and Papa liked them too. They loved also the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. We've had, at least, we've had words now this morning from at least five David Psalms already. From these kinds of images in Scripture, now aligned within a culture in which we live that is so often based on gratification, personal fulfillment, and actualization, so that in many of our lives the biggest threat becomes what happens if I don't find the meaning that I want or if I don't achieve some level of success that I feel I deserve or should create. It would be easy to think and declare even that the main thing about faith is benefit. So come to faith, we would say, because God has even better things for you than all of those other things. It's true that God blesses us. But how? And what for? The distorted view of this benefit can become, and it's the word I use intentionally, grotesque. It's uh, such a perverse distortion that it has an ugliness and a danger to it. The grotesque nature of this kind of theology is uh, what we call prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, the gospel that says Jesus wants you to be healthy all the time and wants you to be rich. That's, that's, it's not even that extreme version of it, but they take one aspect of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Many of you would know this, particularly if you've grown up in this kind of church um, with any kind of biblical literacy, that one of the aspects of Jesus dying on the cross theologically is the atonement, that he paid the price for our sin. He took on our sin, and so we don't face the penalty for our sin. Very important in Christian theology. It's part of understanding the cross, not the whole. If you turn that into the whole, you get into other distortions. But in prosperity gospel, they take atonement theology and they pervert it to say that Jesus died on the cross so that you can be healthy and rich. To be sure, well, what this does is it turns Jesus Christ into an object of our own self-indulgence. You are there so that I can have what I want. I'm the first to say, Scripture tells us that in God we will be granted the desires of our hearts. And I will say, in my faith, in my trust in Jesus Christ, in all these years that I have, He has granted me the desires of my heart. It's just that my heart was so sick that I had terrible desires also. And He granted me the real ones not the surface ones of terrible theology. To be sure, in this life we are blessed and Scripture attests to that. But what does it mean for David and psalmists to say he will not let your foot slip? I always think of trekking in the Himalayas with Daniel Berge. And you told us, Daniel, bring whatever shoes you would wear on the grouse grind. So I did, and it was wrong. <laughs> My mistake. And me, because I thought, well, I do the grass grind a fair bit, so I'm not going to wear these bulky hiking shoes. 
I'm just going to wear my running shoes because that's what I wear on the grouse grind. But I'm not, it's not really your fault, Daniel. It's mine. And by the way, neither Daniel nor myself nor anybody else expected it to snow. The people we were with from, from town, they were like in wonder at this snow. So guess what my foot did all the time trekking in, that Himalaya, in the Himalayas? It kept slipping. But I didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm here. What did it mean for David when he said things like, he will not let your foot slip? David, who had two sons die. An infant and a young adult. He will not let the son harm you? David, who himself is at times the perfect picture of an abuser of power. Taking the wife of a loyal soldier and ordering the death of her husband. He who watches over you will not slumber or sleep. The Lord is your shade. He will keep you from all harm. The benefits model of salvation theologically is described by the two words on the one side. So you see how this is, by the way, the non-distorted version. So it's good. But the benefits model talks often about our salvation, our personal salvation. Many of you in this church, that's what you've grown up with, right? That this faith is about our personal salvation, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I would echo that and say, if I didn't have that, well, what would I have? Sure. I am saved. The implication being that most are not. I have received this benefit. So salvation, which described then by justification, there's court metaphors for this. I've been declared innocent, back to the atonement, innocent instead of guilty. But in, in the language of Scripture, there's maybe a better image than court for describing what justification means. It, it's like having a bone that's broken and then setting it back together so it heals well. Justified. Made right again. That which was wrong. But many of you grew up in Christian churches when sanctification was the business, the name of the day. Sanctification. Becoming holy. Pure, being formed, we are to be sanctified. And in the benefits model of salvation, these are good uh, parts of that theology. The distorted part is that, well, that also means that God will just kind of make sure nothing bad ever happens to you and give you what you want, give you all the time what you want. Karl Barth, you know you were going to get some of that at least, didn't you? In his deep and rich understanding of the scripture said there ought to be a third part to this to move us away from thinking that it's mostly about benefit. And the third part, I've put it on the other side because he said this is the superior of the three. Justification, sanctification, and vocation. What you're for and what this is all for. The Christian faith, relationship with God, is about one thing. And hear this. It's not even my personal salvation. The Christian faith, relationship with God, is about one thing. 
witness. As I have been set free in Jesus Christ my Lord, I am to bear witness to the salvation that is in Him because this salvation, what He has done for me, He has done for all people. Or was the cross just for me or just for you? So the reason you are blessed, the reason you are saved, the reason you are justified and sanctified is that so you might be a witness to what God has done for you in Christ. Vocation is the superior. It takes the pressure off having to have everything good all the time for you. Because this becomes a terrible burden and it leads to, I'm not saying, I mean there are very many reasons for much of the mental health stuff we can struggle with. But one of them is the distortion that can happen in what, we're th- what we think our lives are supposed to be. So if we, if we think our life is supposed to be here, and it winds up kind of over here, then we oh no, oh no, oh no, and we can fall into ourselves. And so if we pick up this wrong-headed idea that our life in Christ is about primarily benefit, and then if we don't feel good or something's not working out, or some, we might actually sink spiritually. But when you understand that the primary reason for your faith in Jesus Christ is that so you might bear witness to others about his love, well, then that's not the measurement, is it? And in fact, I'm looking at Al right now. We've had two people in the last few weeks come up here and give stories, each of them very different, on how things in their lives were working in a way that brought a great deal of pain and angst to them. But through that pain and angst, guess what they did? In our very presence, and by the way, to a larger community, including non-Christians, they bore witness to salvation in Jesus Christ. They both declared their freedom in Jesus Christ. And I could look at you, and I know so many of you well, I could say, I could know that for each of you who know Jesus Christ. I know that your faith, when you are drawing, when you are abiding in Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I know that I could look at you, and you are free. You would say to me, oh, Todd, it's been so difficult, so much pain, so much. But God is good. Tara was just saying that to me this morning. We pray for her grandson. How long, oh Lord, how long? And together we both said, God is good and smiled with his knowing faith, not wishful thinking. People in the Bible, how do I know that it's not primarily about benefit? I know because, like Claudia, and thank you, Claudia. Oh, she, this is typical Claudia. She's kind of running the church in some ways, so she's downstairs doing kids' church right now. If you want to help out with kids' church, we could use some more helpers. Um, but I thank Claudia for her affirmation of reading Scripture. How do I know that it's not primarily about benefit? Because I read the Bible. <laughs> That's how. Now, some people who would distort it would say they know the Bible too, but really they take verses and distort them. What you need to do is look at the people who followed God and the New Testament Christ in Scripture and look at their lives. Look at Abraham. Was his life a life of blessing and benefit? I mean, ultimately blessing, yes. What, God, what promise did God make to Abram before he was named Abraham? I will bless you, and through you I will bless all peoples of the earth. And he took him outside, remember? And he wanted what Abram, what Abram wanted in life more than anything, and his wife wanted, was to be able to have children, and they get to be really old and they don't have kids. And So, what, you know, what is that that God didn't give them what they wanted? 
And when they finally did, that was all messed up too. He said, look at the stars in the sky. Your descendants will outnumber. Be so much more. But Scripture says, Abram, what did he do? God said, there's, there's lessons for this for us in this church. Whatever we do decide with space and building and meeting places. Abram, it's time to go. Nobody here wants to know. I mean, we pray about this, right? We're going to pray. We're going to fast. We're going to get on our knees. Lord, would you give us clear direction? Please tell us what to do. Abram, it's time to go. Oh, Lord, where, where are you sending me? Just go. Start walking. We face much difficulty in this life. Moses, Moses, who's called, God appears to him. Did Moses have a life of just benefit? Terrible, terrible difficulty in Moses' life. But there was this beautiful time when God when Moses, when God said, what would you like? And I think it lined up with the desire of his heart was proper spiritually. And he said, would you show me your glory? And God did. Jeremiah, oh, that my head were a fountain of tears. I would weep all day long for my people. Does that just benefit? <laughs> he cursed the day he was born, Jeremiah did. Partially in response to receiving the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came, came to Jeremiah. Go and tell these people these things. And the people didn't react so well. Threw him in a pit and other terrible things. He said, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to me. And Jeremiah cursed the day that he was born. Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to, to Ezekiel. He didn't turn out to be healthy and rich. And his wife died as a lesson. We've talked about that often. You can keep going in the New Testament. You say, well, those are all Old Testament. Okay, I'll give you the disciples. Each one of them. Or the apostles. Early followers of Jesus. Stephen was killed by stones. As Saul, who would become Paul, looked on approvingly. Lives threatened. Paul's life threatened on both sides by the Christian community those who followed Jesus because they knew him as a persecutor, so some within that community felt they couldn't trust him. And by the other side, that he had left. John, who called himself the beloved disciple, winds up in prison. So if it's not for our benefit, primarily, that we are called and saved and sanctified, then what's it for? You know what I'm going to say because I say it all the time. For witness. Moses. Deliver my people. Show the world. Abram. Through you I will bless all people. Put your name in there. I, it's hard for me. I, honestly, right now in my head, I can't do it because it put, but I've got like five people's names in my head right now in the church. So put your name there, because I would say it. Do you know why you have been set free in faith? It's for so much more than your benefit. It's for the life of the world. 
And I'll tell you, it's one of the blessings of working in a church for extended years. I've seen that blessing that you can become. I've seen it in so many of you. I see also at times terrible burdens. I see things sometimes that are far from freedom. Moses set free. Abram, Jeremiah, Gideon, Jonah, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. So then, what is it that allows and compels this witness? Just mentioned it. Freedom. That we are liberated from self and sin and shame and fear and death. We are liberated from having to make ourselves, to make our own way, to declare our significance in the world. I would count, maybe you would say it's to my detriment, (laughs) that if I felt a little more compelled to become more significant, maybe could have done more. But by God's grace, I have felt a freedom that I don't have to make myself. And anything worthwhile that I've ever said in any part of my life has come because I've trusted in that freedom in Jesus Christ. Carl Barth put it this way. He had seven. I'll only tell you one. He said, we are set seven aspects of freedom when you know Jesus. One, the, one of them is that we are set free from endless possibility to one necessity. It's hard to get some of this, isn't it? What he means is we are set free from looking at the world. So now you can picture yourself as a young adult or something. What am I going to do? Who am I going to be? What kind of career am I going to have? How's my life going to work? And right now what the world says, even more so than in Bart's day, what the world says now is it's endless possibility. And doesn't understand that that's not actually freedom. That is what's killing so many people. I don't know what to do. Should I just make myself up? My parents seem to want me to succeed really well and get a good job. And some of you parents should be really thanked for encouraging your kids in that way. But some of you already know that that hasn't always been a blessing. Because they may have struggled to find their own identity even though they're jumping through hoops for your approval. Endless possibility. And you're set free from that to one necessity, bearing witness to the life of Jesus Christ. The original title for this sermon that I wrote at six in the morning at Princeton University a couple of days ago, having stayed up too late drinking with Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge wrote wrote the book, The Crucifixion. It's the most important theological book of the last probably five years. Big, thick book. Ken and I did a series on The Crucifixion. We just built from her stuff. She's 80 years old now. She has one of the sharpest minds I've ever seen in my life. She is absolutely stunning looking. She makes 80 look just fantastic. And we met her in the elevator when we first got to the center where we were staying. She didn't know us at all. And, you know, you can imagine meeting Ken and I in an elevator. Most people would be like, okay, I'm glad that ride's done. But Fleming Rutledge said to us, and actually it's one of the reasons we signed up for the conference was we heard she was speaking. And she said, I'd like you to come tonight because we're going to just have a little bit of, have some drinks in the bottom of the hotel. 
Because I just love to talk to people and pastors. And, and so we did that. And uh, on that first night, there were like five of us, so it wound up being three nights of this. And she said to us, and she didn't suffer fools. If somebody said something she didn't like, she would say, no, that's wrong. <laughs> she also couldn't hear very well, so you had to lean in sometimes right to her. She has a husband who has rapidly um, advancing dementia himself. And she was here recently in Vancouver. She'd like to come back, but she says she can't really fly anymore. And, but all of this is to say, I this, wrote this at 6 in the morning when I was up way too late the night before drinking with Fleming Rutledge and 25 other people. I don't mean drinking like we weren't partying or anything. Don't worry. I'm fine. But... Um, <laughs> Like, woohoo with this theologian, right? Um, but I will tell you, she was the last one to leave the room every time. And she said to like the five of us on the first night, can you invite more people? I'd like to have some more interesting people to talk with about these important things. And so we did. And there was like 20-some people the next night. And so I didn't go to bed till like one-something in the morning and had no other time. So six o'clock, here we go. And the first title that I had, maybe it was because it was six in the morning, the first title for this sermon was, You Are Not Going to Like This Sermon. Because even in a place like this, even after many years and some decades, there is, I can feel this at times. I can feel in many of you a lack of freedom. Some of you, some of us are held down by moralism. This frustration with the world, the idea that things used to be better, and if only people would get back. Some of you are held down by fear or frustration or disappointment. Some, in kind of a, an interesting twist on putting our faith in Jesus Christ, are, some are held down by fear for family members who they're not sure if they've made a declaration of faith. We've done this terrible thing in our churches. We've modeled consumer culture. So we've said to people, and the best way to get more people to church would be give them whatever program they want, right? So people can drive by 10, 12 churches on their way to church in the morning, and they often pick the one that, well, that one works best for me right now. Uh, it, that's come with a tremendous cost. It's not freedom. When I consider the future of Sutherland, my concern is how can we declare the freedom in Jesus Christ? Because if you're not free, you can't truly be a witness. If you're not free, you cannot truly be a witness. A big part of my job is to help describe this freedom to you. And even, and I know this now in the Holy Spirit, God's been revealing this to me, I feel. And even if you don't have words for it, to look at your actual life, many of you that, who I know, and say, let me show you how freedom in Jesus Christ is working in your life. Let me show you how I know that you're a witness. That's what we did through some of our fall series. So, man, this is not good because I'm getting so into preaching that it's going too long lately. So, Heather won't mind, and it's a quick lunch here. Heather Pasman won't mind if people are a few minutes late. I've got to do the Second Kings thing, right? We can't let that scripture just sit there. So I'll tell you about it and won't preach it. Preach it another day. Second Kings 6 and 7. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, besieges Samaria, Israel, the people of God. 
Donkey's head sells for 80 shekels of silver. And listen to this, the par- a part of cab of dove's dung, which means like that much dove's dung, sells for five shekels of silver. In other words, even the wealthy people in the town are going to die of starvation. And then, as if to painfully tell us how bad it gets, we hear this story about these two women. The story's told in a complaint that one of the women has to the king who happens to walk by. And she says, oh, king, help me. And the king says, I can't help you. This is God's fault. As all that army is besieging the city. He actually, at the end of the passage, Keith read, says, I'm going to have Elisha's head. In other words, he's blaming the prophet, right? Who's speaking the word of God. That prophet also, on this same day, says, we didn't read it, but it comes later, by this time tomorrow, there will be riches in the city. There'll be food. How could that be? Well, what Keith didn't read was that as the story continues, there's four lepers outside the city wall. Why would lepers be outside the city wall? Because they're rejected. They're considered unclean and outcasts. So in this case, they're outside the city wall. But they're starving too. They're in between this this army encamped and the city itself. And they literally say to one another, you can read it, they say, well, I guess we should, what are we going to do? We need some food. There's no food in the city. And if we go, well, let's go to the army that's besieging the city because if we don't, we're going to die anyway. Maybe we'll just die quicker. So they walk towards the army that's besieging the city. Scripture says, meanwhile, thousands of people in this army, multiple hundreds of tents. Meanwhile, Scripture says, God sends a sound like a storm and it overcomes the soldiers encamped around the city so that they're terrified and afraid. There's a few of these types of stories in Scripture. And they run, thinking that they're done. And so what happens next? These four lepers come upon hundreds of empty tents. And there's food, and there's gold, and there's silver, and there's clothes. And, one of the, and it says they go into one of the tents and they're eating and they're picking up piles of clothes. And the scripture says they gather up a bunch of stuff and they go hide it in the bushes. Until one of them says, there's hundreds of tents. And then one of them says this. This is wrong for us to hide this. This might be the only time in the Old Testament, someone could correct me, but it might be the only time in the Old Testament that we see these words. It's wrong for us to hide this because this is a day of good news. Here's what's happening. The world had changed for the people in the city, but they didn't know it. They didn't know it. They continued to live in this fear. And these four broken down lepers knew the good news. And they went to the city. The story continues. Listen to me. If you have been set free in Jesus Christ, the world is to know. The world is to know. It is not right-headed to think. This is kind of my upbringing, to think, you know, I'm saved and and I've got this salvation. Most people don't. And 
There's truth in that that I understand, but the bigger truth is this. What God has done for me in Jesus Christ, he's done for the whole world. My business is not to figure out who's saved or not. My business is to tell the world about the freedom that is theirs already. They just don't know it. And they're living as if they're still besieged. We are to be witness. So my grandparents and others, what does it mean that my foot won't slip? I know what they would say to me through all the joy and pain of their lives. I never knew. They, my dad was their only child. And I never knew. Do they want more kids? I don't know. Very unusual to have just one child in those days. They would say through it all, he has blessed me and been faithful. And they were witnesses to him. Psalm 121. May we, as we face times of rebuilding, know that this is not only our primary call, it is our only call, and it is the reason for our faith. I hope you have, I mean, I want your life to be great and many times easy. certainly want mine to be easy. (laughs) But that's not where you're going to discover the life of life. In how you are a witness, you will. Let's pray. So come, Holy Spirit, and guide us in this time. Forgive us for how so often even our faith can become so self-centered. I am not a Christian so that I can experience these wonderful things about you, Lord. Though I do, and I would say to every person here, if I could say, like, eyes to eyes, I could say, oh, God has been so good to me. So good that I can't even believe, Lord, how good you've been to me. And I would tell everybody here. But I know, I know in my heart and the power of the Holy Spirit that your goodness to me is not simply for me. It's so that others would know the life that they can have in you. Would you set us free? Come, Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.